The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. If you haven't fast-forwarded through this far yet, here's Brandon. Welcome back to another splendid week on The Brandon Peters Show. Today features a conversation on the landmark 1984 mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. Joining me for that discussion, I'm beyond excited to welcome two-time Hugo Award winner and creator and host of Radio Free Scarrow, as well as Lazy Doctor Who, Stephen Shapansky. Thank you for uh, does it does my bio say two Hugo Awards? I've I've I, gone on I've gone on to win somehow I've gone on to win three more. Three more? Yeah. Not because of me. I am okay. I am basically like, you know, Spinal Tap is the band and I am just the lowly drummer riding the coattails of their success and and somehow managing to survive to win five Hugos as opposed to gotcha. getting blown up at every concert. So yeah. Uncanny so, Magazine is the outfit that I have <laughs> ridden the coattails on doing the podcast for, hence the five Hugo Awards. Gotcha. Part of my poor research, but I I, no. I knew you had won one or two of these. And then I there's a there's a place called like the Sci-Fi Awards database, and you were right. listed for two of them. I know. I'm only listed for two. I did some research on this, not for something to brag about, but for confirmation. And I do believe that in all of the history of the Hugo Awards, which I think have been handed out since 1949 or something like that, I am the winningest Canadian in Hugo Awards history. What Take- pose are you going to do for the statue that's going to be outside somewhere? <laughs> I don't know. I call those Hugo Awards monuments to imposter syndrome because, you know, I, I won it for a podcast for a magazine as opposed to like all the people who like write books for decades <laughs> yearning to get one of these suckers have never got one. And I've got, well, yeah, I've got five. And plus my wife, who's also producer of the podcast, mm-hmm. she got Hugo's too. So there are 10 Hugo Awards in our home. And occasionally, I, like I remember watching an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode when they're sort of like, it's the uh, far beyond the stars. I don't know how mm-hmm. well, you know, well you know DS9. It's one of the best and Star Trek series there is. So. It, is yeah. it, it is the best. Um, <laughs> I believe the lab results are in it. I did say it was the best. And in in the one episode, because it's like takes place in this 1950s dream world in, a, in mm-hmm. a science fiction magazine production company. And one of the writers or someone who's working on the show brought in their Hugo Award as a prop. Mm. And I remember seeing that going, that's so cute that one person on the thing has one Hugo. And I, I could I could work on that show and go, which one of these monuments to imposter syndrome would you want to use for the prop? Maybe put this one over here. Right. You can use one <laughs> in a different scene, perhaps. So, yeah. It's a burden that I wear with pride, most well, winningest Canadian. What's in the package? Ah, oh, it's just another Hugo. Just another, another Hugo. <laughs> yep. Actually, I actually was able to receive one in person because they bounce oh, okay. around. 
they get we were in like Helsinki in Scotland and uh, I don't know where else somewhere in the states and I was actually at the one in San Jose the third one where we won mm-hmm. uh, and that was nice it was nice to sort of like be on a stage and like do a speech and stuff and win an award usually it's just like I'm watching a somewhat janky live stream from somewhere halfway across the world and you find out on Twitter that three minutes before you're watching it that actually you've won and say oh I guess we won a Hugo award so. wow. Yeah, it's it's so weird with those never think about them in your life happening awards. Because not that I'm a recipient of anything like that. <laughs> right. Become a reality. Like I have a friend of mine, Russell McGee, who's an audio engineer for Big mm-hmm. Finish. Tie him oh, into this. Oh, nice. He did a an audio drama of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a couple of years ago, and it got nominated for a Rondo Award, a Rondo Hat, and it's like, whoa. He's like, yeah, I never thought I'd be up for one of those. And then my friend Maxwell Haddad, who's been on the show, he won a Tony a couple months ago. As a producer. Yeah, he won a Tony Award. Wow. He was just happy to be nominated. And then they finally, it was like last year, and then he was nominated last, like December, and then they couldn't figure out when to have the awards, and then he had it, and he won. And I was like, no. Hey. Yeah, just he's like, oh, knowing people who have won prestigious awards. It's my thing now. I know them. I know. And now now you've got Hugo Award winners. Uh, There you go. So... Congratulations. Yeah, I guess. There I we go. Know. There we go. Yeah. Yes. To bring it back to myself. Yes. <laughs> as we do. As we do. So you are the mm-hmm. you I'm gonna guess that you run one of the maybe the longest fan podcasts of all time. Maybe oh, longest running. Oh I don't know, but the well, I um you're talking about Radio Free Scar. Radio Free Scar, yes. You're Dr. Like <laughs> it's started, one of them, right? It's gotta be up there. We started it in August of 2006. Mm-hmm. So just over a year since the show came back in 2005. I know we've done a lot of episodes. There's a show called Tin Dog Podcast, which is just mm-hmm. one person. He usually does shorter episodes. So he's managed to crank up more episodes than us. There is a German Doctor Who podcast. Really? That okay. I, it's called Who Cast. I believe they are still going. Not nearly as many episodes, but they started before us. Wow. And and there were a couple others that that started before us that have since come and gone. But we, the the three of us, have continued for over 15 years now. Okay. Because we don't know what else to do with our lives. So it's amazing. <laughs> to it. It's and it's part the of same the three. It's the same three. I and in podcasting, it's gotta be a rarity that that has happened from uh upstart, homegrown, nobody's living in mansions type thing. Like <laughs> We, we've upgraded our mics over the years. Yeah, there you go, yeah. Um, we've grown older. It's fascinating to think that, you know, when I started, I'm 46 now. I was 31 when I started this podcast. I mean, yeah. think of when you were 15 years younger than you are now. and Just like, by word. Like, uh, so, yeah, sometimes it's it's difficult to comprehend. I met, I met my spouse through the podcast. She listened oh, to it go. as a fan. And then we started talking and we met at a Doctor Who convention. And now she married me and she moved here and now has her own Doctor Who podcast. So like, you know, this silly podcast thing has become more than just a hobby, I, right. I dare say. Yeah. No, I think people don't understand that with podcasting, that it could be, I mean, they're like, oh, it's a hobby. I'm like, just, uh, hobbies don't involve like crushing hours, working schedule, like, Right. It's it is job like. It is very job like, but it's like the fun job that you'd be like, Oh, I, I would do this for free. I guess I'm doing this for free. I would do it for free, but you right. know money involved. But there's there's Patreon and ways to, to do there, that. There there's Patreon. I mean it's not it's not the I think we were sort of you know, enough people came up to us over the years saying, you know, I would pay you money 
to make this podcast. Like I would chip in, you know, a couple mm-hmm. bucks a month and enough people said, oh, fine, we'll, we'll call your bluff then, generous listeners. And, and for the most part, they did. No, <laughs> but it, it's fun because it's a Doctor Who podcast and I love Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when I'm thinking, you know what, what would I want to listen to on a Doctor Who podcast that's made expressly for me. And then you realize, wait a minute, I make that podcast. And so if I want to do a feature on a director or a writer or something, or if, you know, on occasions like a Doctor Who book has come out and says, you know what, I love this book to death. Let's email all three of the people who worked on this book and get them on the show to talk about it. In a way, I feel a little bit guilty just because people will like, go to a convention or something or try to ask them a question on Twitter. But no, I have a podcast, which is I could email them and they'll come on my show and talk about their book. I'll steal 45 minutes of their time to talk about the thing, you know, whereas people like have to beg, borrow and steal to get 30 seconds at a convention or something like that. So it's uh, it's handy. It's handy to- uh, It is. Yeah. That's something I never, yeah, realized. There's things to realize with that, but yeah, like some, oh, a podcast. Well, (laughs) this is serious business. I'll I'll take that offer up. I don't know. I don't know why the podcast is like, you know, if, oh, I'd like to email you all these questions and this, who is this weirdo? But oh, you have a podcast. Sure. I'll come on and talk about my Myself for an hour about my book. Sure, you know. Can I, don't, can I get a soundbite, please? I know. I don't know what's what's so alluring about a podcast for people to come on these shows. It's weird. It, yeah, it's it's taken seriously for as much as it's joked about being people in their basements or whatever. Yeah, you know, everybody's got a podcast. Well, then everybody wants to be on a podcast <laughs> as much as everybody wants to start a podcast. Exactly. So yeah, and you were mentioning all the different aspects of your. That's one of the best things about your show. I only re- I only discovered your show. A few years ago, well, yeah. I don't, I don't know. In these times, I don't know how long, but <laughs> right, I was very surprised. And I'm normally, you know, I'm in the world of podcasting. You know that there are a lot of subpar podcasts out there. There are a lot of <laughs> you. <laughs> I not not to push fighting it. words, yeah, fighting no, no. words, and you can come into them, especially like fan podcasts. You don't know who you're going to get, whatever. And I was, and I normally stay away from them. And then also, when you're in podcasting, you don't listen to a lot of podcasts, which is yeah. a weird, weird thing. No. But I found through like a, a forum, a link to your show, because I was hungry for Blu-ray Doctor Who news. Okay. Like, I want to know everything I like. And I think you had an interview early on in the series, like early on in the sets, you had an interview with somebody. Right. And I came like, okay, I'm going to suck it up and just listen to this interview. And I came for the Doctor Who stuff. But like I stayed because of like the production values, the preparation of the show and the personalities of the show really just stuck out huge oh. like with you guys. Like, and I think that's something people, I mean, should know about your show. Like it's like, well, like I can't tell you how many shows I tell people because I run a group in indie I co-manage called Podcast Indie and it's for local podcasters and we, you know, help them start podcasts, make their podcast better, things like that. Right. And one thing I preach is, write your show. Like this one thing people don't think about is think turn the mics on talk, but I'm like, you need an out, you need something. And I can tell with your show, there's minutes, points, uh, there's a driving, <laughs> there's a steering wheel there that really is different than a lot of shows. Well, it's, and, it's called a, a list. A list. Of topics. There you go. Uh, and that's about it when it comes to, it's funny because I think we had some sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, we f- felt like we sort of owed listeners probably more than they actually wanted. Mm-hmm. And so we would often like, what are we to do on the show? We have to have an interview or some sort of feature 
and only recently did people say that actually mostly listen to the show for the banter for the right. three of you talking about <laughs> Doctor Who. And I feel like I I busted my ass trying to get some of right. these interviews. You don't even appreciate them. But but to bring to go back to the the Blu-ray point, I mean, yes, the one thing that all three of us have in common is that I don't think we think that a lot of Doctor Who podcasts sort of focus on the creative aspect, like how it's mm-hmm. made. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, being a producers and directors and the people who make the Blu-rays. And so you're probably referring to, I think Russell Mil- Minton uh, has been on the show two or three times. He's the executive producer of the whole range. Mm-hmm. And I dropped him a line and it turned out he was already a listener to the show, which is handy. Uh, and, and so- <laughs> He's like, oh my gosh, they contacted me. <laughs> they contact- And so, you know, once I heard that, well, I just contact him all the time to talk about Doctor Who Blu-ray stuff, you know, the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's one thing to talk about the episodes, but, you know, I feel like the Doctor Who Blu-ray set, which I was not expecting. I was expecting the, the DVDs to sort of like pass off into non-existence and that would be it for physical media for the classic mm-hmm. series of Doctor Who. And then they started bringing out these amazing Blu-ray sets. Yeah. And I just thought, well, A, I'm interested in them. And B, I think everyone else should be interested in them too. They should. So so that they do well (laughs) and they'll keep making them. And so I want to help spread the word. I don't think I need to spread the word uh, that much. I think there's enough of an audience to buy them in the first place. But, you know, it's work on those things that is worth celebrating. And that's another function of the podcast, you know. Right. Loved, we love Doctor Who. So let's celebrate not only the show, but those who make it as well. Yeah. And I, that's one aspect that I, I really like. So I could tell you all have some sort of production background or at least understanding because there's a lot of stuff with like yeah. the fandom things that people don't get like there's a business angle to things there's production angles there's understanding those, and it helps you appreciate mm-hmm. something a lot more if you understand those things i feel like in modern fandom that's a thing that's lacking it's just what's the story but not understanding how everything came to be that story and some things that people think some par are maybe not or there's a reason why or you know where people get divisive on things and yeah I love the episodes of Doctor Who or whatever show I, you know, especially the back in the day when like, you know, Star Trek Next Generation or something, it was like mm-hmm. 24 or 26 episodes a year. And they basically, listen, we have an episode that's due to shoot in six days and we yeah. don't have a script and we can't postpone it. It's not like we could say, no, we're only going to do 25 episodes. We have to fill that slot somehow. Here's something that we probably speed wrote. The script isn't that polished. We got to go before the cameras though, because we got to keep making something. The show must go on. And it's terrible because there's not enough time has been yeah. put into it because they didn't have there because something else went wrong. It's the finding out and the analyzing how it went wrong that mm-hmm. I find fascinating. And when I watch something that's bad, you know, I don't think nobody sets out to make something, some bad piece of television, but something right. along the line has gone wrong and then something else has gone wrong to sort of try to compensate for that. And all of a sudden you've got like eight or nine things have gone wrong. And those are the things that I find fascinating. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I never sort of like look at a TV show and go, that's just, that's just bad. They just made bad stuff. Like what happened here? Something happened here where they had to to cut a corner to do something to make it sort of like some way presentable. And I, I just, I find it admirable that people behind the scenes, you know, did their absolute best to try to make the best of a bad situation. Some marriages were ended over that episode, you know, like. (laughs) Possibly. Yeah. Somebody or was begun, or maybe begun, or maybe begun, and yes. maybe they were distracted because they were too busy, uh, you know, getting to know their future spouse, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So no, I, I like that. I love. I mean, I guess since you're 
listeners know, but I, I like those mini scopes where you do focus more on what yeah. a certain person brings to certain episodes. So you can, you have the ability to talk about an episode multiple times, but from different angles and different appreciations. Like I really enjoy that sort of thing. And you're not limited to just Doctor Who you during, well, we're still in a pandemic, but yeah. uh, last year you had like data experts and uh, people who study diseases and things onto your show, which was <laughs> great. Like it was... It, it wasn't like what I was I, like a tune in, like what Doctor Who? Oh, we're going to talk about the pandemic. But it was good stuff. Like, uh, yeah, I because uh, it was weird. The early days of that pandemic, uh, that pandemic, he says with fondness as if it's over, <laughs> as you say. We always had the pandemic. You know? Yeah. No, it just happened to be that someone who we knew, Stacy Smith, who was a writer of several Doctor Who books, also mm-hmm. was like a, I don't know what her title is, but like, you know, disease mathematician basically her job is to track and predict how pandemic spread and i thought well mm-hmm. you know what we could talk about her book and we could also ask her about the pandemic and then <laughs> a, a writer friend who we knew actually came down with covid in the early days and so like we and so yeah i, I sort of felt it like you know, a responsibility to not ignore what was going on mm-hmm. because it was everywhere. COVID was everywhere and those are especially in those early days. And so we kind of leaned into it from a Doctor Who right. angle. So to almost, you know, to sort of say, yes, it's scary, but here is some information that maybe we can help to get through this. Yeah. You know? Providing a service, if I might be so portentous to say. That's that's kind of what I felt sort of felt we should be doing in the, those first few days of the of the pandemic and back when we thought that would be over in like six weeks or something like that and and here we are going yeah. on two years yeah 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 mm, gonna be fun times, interesting fun december times. I want, yeah. yeah yeah as close as we get the well if we get close i don't know yeah. i i'm doing my part i don't i can't try to be responsible for other I, people but we're finding out that it's it's not a over and done with situation like it doesn't all end at the same time it's a much bigger fade out than it is you know everything sort of w- went into lockdown at once mm-hmm. and that's what was kind of terrifying like basically yeah. all in north america like the second week of march uh everyone says oh boy let's just shut everything down and everyone just shut down borders closed shops closed sports league yeah. done and then now over the past few months, it's just sort of been, okay, we do this now. Okay, we'll do this, but we'll wear masks. And then now we're vaccinated and this and, you know, and so I, I was sort of expecting like this, oh, we found the vaccine and there's this big hurrah orchestra build moment and everyone just gets vaccinated the next day and like oh, two <laughs> weeks later, we all run out into the sunshine and everything's back it. to normal. Yeah, but it's not, nope. it's not that way. It's not nope. how it works. It mutates it. Yeah. If you, if you don't take care of it, we, yeah. it stays around. But there's always been Doctor Who to talk about over the past couple of years. So that's, you know, it's not like we've been hurting for content. No, no. And right now you're in the, we're in the middle of flux, which has been, whereas as of this recording, this, the Village of the Angels is the recent episode. When this episode drops, it won't be. No. But where we're at as this recording is a week behind what you're listening to. But um, I am loving this. I don't even care if they stick the landing. I'm enjoying the ride. (laughs) Like that's, I'm a ride person. So if you can just decently drop an ending that's okay, I'm going to yep. be very happy. Because my favorite part of the roller coaster isn't when the thing comes up and you get off and walk out. It's during. So, <laughs> right. So I, I always know. explain to people. I mean, I love pretty much all Doctor Who. So mm-hmm. it's it's not hard for me to get excited about it. But I, I feel like this is the Doctor Who 
that the BBC hired Chris Chibnall away from Broadchurch <laughs> to make. Uh, right? And it took him his third and final season to make the show that I think everyone was sort of expecting. And it's brilliant. He's really yeah. good at it. I think it, this is easily my favorite season of his. It, right. uh, I like the I like series twelve a lot too. I did too. I, I, but it's like, oh, I can be better too. Yeah, I so, feel yeah. like the the way the TV is now, where everything's sort of a serialized, mm-hmm. maybe even everything's sort of contained to one season, and maybe some holdovers for the year after or something like that. I think this is just the way that modern TV is being made, and it's nice to see sort of Doctor Who get get into that because as of so many shows started off on basic cable or some other cable network and then they just sort of splintered off and now they're just mm-hmm. all on streaming services and it's only Doctor Who the only show left basically right. of its kind that's beholden to like TV ratings and TV schedules and the old way of doing things so I, mm-hmm. I like that it's sort of moving it into new ground for it I, I thought of it like because I it was weird like I was like well that's I mean it is Doctor Who and it is isn't Doctor Who because back in the day you used to get a bunch of serials and that yeah. was a season and now we got something a lot of standalones and then maybe a tie in here and there mm. but I was thinking the other day I was like you know what if because they typically typical season without a pandemic without a thing was like eleven to thirteen episodes right yeah about that what I was I was thinking this could work. And be a lot of fun if maybe Doctor Who premieres in the fall with a five to six episode serial. New Year's or Christmas Day special. And then the spring with another five to six episode serial. You don't have to throw it all at once. You can have some gaps in production and maybe take a year off if if that's a need. But I think between two five to six episode serials, when things get to more normal production standards again, that could be a doable thing. And then you get multiple serials, a standalone special, like could have a variety of things, but yeah, I think that's a great idea. I hope, I hope they do that. I think it's also, uh, I said this on the podcast, you know, when you, when you, when you get to be as, let's face it, as old as modern Doctor mm-hmm. Who is, I don't, I refuse to call it new Who anymore because it's not new, right, it's 15 yeah. years old. <laughs> it's tough to say, Hey, look at, look at this fresh new brand new series from Russell mm-hmm. T Davies. Hey, it's also series 14 of Doctor Who. Right. You could, you could get away with that by just saying like, it's not, they're not referring it to it as as series thirteen. It's Doctor Who Flux. Mm-hmm. You know, next it's on year, the title card. I was it's like, the oh, title card. Yeah. It's not series thirteen. Next year, if hopefully this is my dream, but you know, like if Russell T Davies' first uh, new series of Doctor Who is like Doctor Who colon some other overall arching title, and you don't have to worry Rise about of the New Dawn. Rise of the New Dawn. What yeah. insert title here? Generic title. Yeah, yeah, and you don't have to worry about calling mm-hmm. it a number because right. anytime you you know put a number next to it it sort of indicates how long you've been around for and being around for 14 seasons of modern who is pretty impressive but it doesn't look as exciting right you're trying to market it you know yeah no for sure and do you do you think we'll get it because what series this 14th series will be around the 60th anniversary do you think they'll have that first and then a 60th special or do you think we just I wait think, until the 60th. And... I think it starts at the 60th special. Okay. Um, so new Doctor, congrats. I, I think I, I've, I've, it's been a while since I read the press release, but I think it's going to be that because basically, what are we, next year's 2022 have to do <laughs> yep. this, right? Like, they'll be making it. Uh, that's yeah. the thing. They'll probably start making it sometime next year, maybe in the spring, yeah. once everything's cast, written, designed, and everything, but they won't be showing it for another year probably maybe they'll have enough maybe they'll be this i mean based on russell t davies comments about uh you know there should be a doctor who expanded universe and there should be like you know 10 different series and stuff and then this is before he 
became showrunner again, and now everyone's sort of expecting this Doctor Who expanded universe. So, so mm. yes, they might start next spring making yeah. Doctor Who, but after they're done that, maybe they start making uh, another couple spinoff series and have that in the can. But I can't imagine that Russell T. Davies would want a spinoff, not the main show, basically, to yeah. be the first thing that is seen publicly. So I right. think I think what we might, uh, hopefully not in in for a whole year off between Jodie Whittaker's last in October yeah. of 2022 to the uh, 60th anniversary special. But fingers crossed. I don't know anything about that, though. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to figure, I'm like, do they want it to over, like, if they bring back a lot of doctors, do they want it to overshadow whoever the new person is? That's or, a thing. That's a, yeah. It's a weird, because I, I, I thought, oh, they'll keep Jodie around till the 60th. And then, oh, right the year yeah. before, huh? Okay. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe there will be a new season in in the spring. I don't know. I'm just trying to think. 2023. Yeah. yeah. Like just... logistically it makes sense. I think I think maybe it's a Christmas special. Maybe maybe yeah. Doctor Who returns as a Christmas special, which hasn't happened since Chris Chibnall took over and you know how much right. Russell T Davies loves Christmas. I'm taking back Christmas. <laughs> He's Chibnall. taking it back and I'm okay with that. I miss yeah. them. I, I do miss, too, yeah. I I miss in a way, I miss having to wrangle a watching of the episode and a recording of the podcast around Christmas dinners. <laughs> it it was frenetic and frantic, but I I kind of missed the buzz of all that. You right? Know? Yeah. 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 I miss the chaos. <laughs> I miss the chaos. I miss the inconvenience of Doctor Who Christmas specials, but I <laughs> I really miss them. All right. Oh, gotta go to Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah gotcha. Exactly. Yep. Gotcha. No, that's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, also, I have down here, like you've interviewed so much talent over the years through Gallifrey One convention, your own podcast. Mm -hmm. What was the first interview that you felt like, oh my gosh. And then what was one that's still out there that's possible, a person still alive that you could, they called up, you'd be like, yes. Oh, finally. Um, the first, I mean, it's odd. I, I, I never fashioned myself as being an interviewer. But I th we were at our first Gallifrey One convention, and there was a writer of a book, David J. Howe, mm -hmm. who was there. And he wrote, like, several Doctor Who books that I um, grew up with. And so both Warren and Chris, my co-host, felt that you should be the one to talk to him. And I was like, I am terrified of talking to people. And, but I did. And I also talked to Steve Roberts, who was behind the Doctor Who DVDs at the time as well. Because I sort of knew the most about those things, I was sort of the natural in their eyes. And then I... I sort of grew in confidence since then. I think the first big one was later that year in 2009, because we reached out to Phil Ford, who was co-writer of The Waters of Mars, the uh, David Tennant special from mm -hmm. 2009. And it was going to air in November November 15th, 2009, as I recall. And we managed to like get a hold of Phil Ford, who was, I think we talked to him at Gallifrey One, that's why. And we got him as an interview on the show a week before. And so we, ha it was felt like, this is like, we've got like an exclusive with a Doctor yeah. Who writer who's writing an episode that hasn't even aired yet. That was sort of like our, our coming of age gotcha. moment. So that, that was the first one. The, the oddly enough, the last interview I've done was in February of 2020 because of the pandemic, but Christopher Eccleston right. on stage at Gallifrey One, which I will never forget. I will never forget that interview. In in many ways, I'm glad that a pandemic has happened because nothing could top that. <laughs> so gay. <laughs> it was his first appearance at a Doctor Who convention. He'd only done a couple of audience Q&As 
mm. with like at a couple of the places like Portland, I think, and Minneapolis or somewhere else. And so, but this is this first actual Doctor Who convention. And I was asked to do it, which I said, yes, please. And then what I loved is that the convention runner, Sean Lyons, said, okay, but here's, here's the catch though. I kind of don't want to have audience questions. Are you okay with that? And that's when I thought he was joking. You know, because like, <laughs> obviously, yes, I would just like to speak. I talked earlier before about yeah. like, you know, being, having my own 60 minutes with whoever I want. I felt like, okay, I get to have 60 minutes, the first 60 minutes with Christopher Eccleston mm -hmm. that he's ever had. Right. At the Doctor yeah. Who convention. And the reception he received was astounding. I actually, I told him before we went on because on the, on stage there, because, you know, for those that don't know, Christopher Eccleston was Doctor Who for one year, then he left under mysterious circumstances <laughs> and sort of was estranged from the world of Doctor Who until right. relatively recently. And there, on stage at the Gallifrey One convention, there's a TARDIS, you know, as is the case in many other Doctor Who conventions, I'm sure. But I suggested to him, I think you should go through the TARDIS and emerge from the TARDIS doors. They're almost eat like, that up. Almost yeah. is like, yeah, like a validation, like you are right. still the doctor. And, and I remember him saying, would that give him a kick? And I said, yes, that will give him a kick. <laughs> and yeah. And just to be a part of that moment and the love that that man received from that mm -hmm. crowd who were waiting 15 years to show them that, you know, for a lot of them that he was his, their first doctor. It was an emotional experience and I could tell it meant a lot to him as well. And I wanted him to have that moment because I felt that he had sort of deserved it over the yeah. years. So to, to see what power he could have over yeah. Like, yeah. And so so and buy you said, ten minutes of an ovation. You only have to get through fifty more. There you go. Exactly. So I you know, ever since that, I mean I don't I don't know if I have the right to have a a white whale. Uh Peter gotcha. Capaldi oh um, yeah would be such a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think he's just got a, a world of wisdom about him. And I think it would be, a, but oddly enough, I'd, I find that he's not talking about Doctor Who as much since no. he left the show. I don't know if he's just sort of like wants to put it behind him as, as much, but maybe he'll, maybe in 15 years time, he'll come around like Chris <laughs> Eccleston did. But yeah, he would be a, he would be a blast, I think, to talk to. Oh, sure, sure. He's got, I mean, such a career too. That's, yeah. Even beyond the Doctor Who stuff, that's crazy. He's but. got an album out now. You know, yeah. his first music album's out now to the thick of it and everything else before that. Yeah. Now he's in the DC Comics fandom, people. They, he belongs to them now. <laughs> we we passed him off. We had our time with him. We were lucky enough to have that. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Your show, it airs on Sundays. Yes. Except next month, you guys do an advent calendar. So it's like daily. Right, it's daily. Yeah, we do. We do what's called the fluid links. I don't know why we call them fluid links, but they're basically questions or comments that the the listeners send us, and then we randomly draw one. We usually do episodes. We do one or two episodes a year, just of those. It's kind of like basically a feedback show in a way, but it's not about us. It's just about Doctor Who and stuff. But mm -hmm. over the past few years, we've done an advent calendar. We would do one question a day, six or seven minutes each day, building up to. Uh, the, what used to be the Doctor Who Christmas special, but now, <laughs> of course, it's not. We're not going all the way to New Year's, but Christmas is on the weekend, so at least it is building up to an episode of uh, of Radio Free Scarrow at the very least. This there you go. Yeah, yeah, the post-Christmas episode. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely there'll be links and stuff, and you should listen to Radio Free Scarrow if you're a Doctor Who fan. I know plenty of you have enjoyed my Doctor Who stuff on here, so definitely. that's This is what I listen to, so there you go. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. I, 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 whenever I'm on a, a non Doctor Who podcast, I feel guilty, like I'm, you know, like as if everyone knows about Doctor Who as much as I do. But of course they don't. So, and of course, my natural Canadianism forces me to apologize <laughs> for confusing anyone who doesn't know about Doctor Who. bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. This is the loudest rock and roll, rock and roll. most explosive band in heavy metal history. This is Spinal Tap. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. The funniest movie ever made about rock and roll. Choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. The monumental classic. There was a Stone Age monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. The makeup of your audience seems to be young boys. Oh, it's a sexual thing, really. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. No, don't have I was just pointing at it. Well, don't point. I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. The numbers all go to 11. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. This is Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap, which is the first feature film directed by Rob Reiner, written by Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. And it stars Reiner, McKean, Shearer, and Guest, with, also with Tony Hendra, uh, R.J. Parnell, David Caff, Ed Begley Jr., Fran Drescher, Patrick McNee, featuring appearances by Howard Hessman, Paul Schaefer, Dana Carvey, Sandy Helberg, Billy Crystal, Fred Willard, and Angelica Houston, and probably a lot more, but I'm stopping there. Right. But it's about Spinal Tap. One of England's loudest bands is chronicled by film director Marty DeBerge on what proves to be a fateful tour. So, Stephen, as always, when you're a new guest on the show and you bring a movie to the table, why Spinal Tap? I think it's one of the greatest films of all time. And I do not speak lightly when I say that. <laughs> it basically invented the mockumentary genre. You know, I know that there've been some stuff. I know the Ruddles, which is- uh, All you need is cash. Yeah. All you need is cash. That is excellent. But I think the way they played it was perhaps a little silly-ish. I, what I love about Spinal Tap is, and I'll, I'll be calling it probably Spinal Tap, not usually this is Spinal Tap. So You're right. So I'm sure m- most people will do. I watched it again for the billionth time today, just before recording this. And what I love about it is that it is in all intents and purposes, like a serious movie where it's never played for laughs. Like everything sort of happens in the film happens like you could believe it. It's a believable, ridiculous 
comedy, how sharp it is. The, you know, I love that when it came out, so many bands were basically like trying to just, oh no, that's not like it is all that. <laughs> and then when it became popular, it's like, oh no, no, that's totally us. Yes, that's 100% us. We're like Spinal Tap, you know. It just became this beacon for all of rock and roll to say that, yes, every rock and roll band has basically had been represented in some way by this is Spinal Tap. <laughs> I love that Marty DeBerge, uh jokes about, you know, what I was impressed by, their loudness, you know, their drive and their punctuality. And I love that this movie is 82 minutes long, not yeah. even an hour and a half long. It's not like they shot 82 minutes. They shot over a hundred hours of film footage. There is a bootleg cut that is about six hours long that contains entire subplots that didn't make it into the movie. What I love about the movie, not most, but one of the main things I love about it is that it's a very good case of how editing helps a movie and just like tightens mm-hmm. it right up to the to the base story. If this was made today, it would be two and a half hours long. It would be an overlong Netflix series or something like that. It would be straight right. on, but no, it's 82 minutes of pure perfection. Some of the stuff they left out is gold as well, but it would, it would sort of detract from the actual rhythm of the movie. And mm-hmm. uh, that's why I think it's just a perfect movie. Yeah, and I like I always I'm not against like long movies. If you're a great mm-hmm. movie, you know, tell your story. But guess of the show, Mike Vanderbilt and I talk about a lot of times. Like sometimes I want to watch like a couple movies in a night. Mm-hmm. Today it's like uh, most movies are like, well, that's it for my night. You know, like I <laughs> yep. time for bed, or I can watch like the first quarter of one. But I like to watch. T- you know, there will be nights where I'm like, maybe I get two or three movies in, and you usually have to go well back to watch something like something like spinal tap i could maybe fit four spinal taps in <laughs> in a in a good evening you could watch that bootleg cut if you there want you to yeah you know but yeah no the edit like like you said perfectly like editing is such an under under like underappreciated art form when it comes to television movie mm. music production and stuff where i don't think people realize the power an editor has to completely change a story or make you focus on something such a different way and yeah taking this down to 82 minutes it could have been something completely completely different but yeah you you mentioned the mockumentary aspect and how important that is this leads to where we have with comedy television nowadays like it yeah. starts here because this has you know, this this movie comes out in 84 and then towards the late 90s, Christopher Guest starts dipping back into this and making mm-hmm. movie like all his movies become mockumentaries. And then Best in Show, that one becomes pretty popular. Yeah. And then The Office and then Parks and Rec and then Modern Family. And then we're all the way to what we do in the shadows now, which that is now the cadence for a television show. Mm-hmm. And it goes, I trace it all the way back to here. That's where I think it came from. It, I know it starts here, and and what I love about it is that like I'm I'm mostly not a fan of all the shows that you mentioned that came after. Well, that's fair because I think they're all trying to do Spinal Tap. Yeah, the Christopher Guest ones are good. There's an edge to Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Profanity might be part of it. It feels. <laughs> Even more real. There's no profanity in the like the best in show. They're waiting for Guffman, a mighty wind. They're uh, they're genuine. They got a they got a heart to them. They all have like a bit of a charm and yeah. And I don't know. I don't know what the the scripting was like for the movies. I know that Parks and Rec and The Office were definitely scripted. The dialogue in This Is Spinal Tap is almost all improvised. Mm-hmm. They basically yeah. would. Here's what happens in this scene. 
they might work some stuff out and sort of like, here's what we'll do with it. So they're not like, you know, just a, doing a bunch of yes anding and stuff. But other than that, like it just so, because of that, it feels natural. Yeah. It's a natural, people are talking over each other. Like that's where some of the best lines get in, like just a little bit, you know, what's wrong with being sexist? No, sex E. And I just, uh, the confused look of Nigel afterwards is like, that's comedy gold right there. Right. Uh, you know? Well, and like, yeah, every scene is, okay, Every scene needs to be this. We're going to walk yeah. in this door and we're leaving in this door. How we get there, that's up to you. And there's a great brilliance in the improvisation here that would kill movies in the 2000s and stuff because there's a sense of making the scene work and completing the scene that when you get to some of the like Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen movies becomes a sense of one upsmanship with the yeah. improv where yeah. there's no straight man. It's all, I'm outrageous. No, I'm more outrageous or I'm going to say something crazier than what you just said. This one, a guy's, he's doing funny. I'm going to do something to keep him going. Like it's, it's in assistance of each other rather than competing with each other. Yeah. That's what makes it feel so real. Like I remember, I'm trying to think about my history with this, this movie is because I think my first notion of Spinal Tap being a thing is when they, the band, was mm-hmm. on The Simpsons. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to think, like, it was probably, what, like, 91, 92? Like, second or third season, it was early. I want to say. Mm-hmm. I did not know of a band called Spinal Tap, but I watched that and thought it was hilarious, then looked in the credits and thought, wait a second, there is no David St. Hubbard's in the credits, there is no <laughs> Nigel Tufnell. And then it, re- it dawned on me, that's not a real band. And then mm-hmm. I had to do some research. And then I was in bands myself in the late 90s and stuff. And that movie, I'm sure with every other band, had just became our shorthand. We found it and then we just watched it nonstop. I watched it again today. I didn't need to. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew all the lines. Just like, and even the most inconsequential lines, you know, like whenever we're like, we're on a mic or something, we go, mm-hmm. this is mic number one. This is mic number one. Isn't that a lot of fun? That's, you know, just random. Of little bits from their sound check in there, and he got you know, G- hello, hello, Jenny, David, David, smell the gloves here. Like, literally, every line has been uttered. It's in your uh, vernacular, it's uh, into the vernacular, it's just part of it. It's not even just the Hello Cleveland or anything mm-hmm. like that. I have chambered one line, I'm always waiting. I've only been able to use it once or twice, but whenever there's some sort of like some sort of discussion, and then it sort of dies down, and whenever. Somebody sort of asks, you know, I'm going to ask a rational question at this point. I just want to jump in. No, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge. <laughs> I just, I just want to do that instinctively every time because of that scene. There's so you, much gold in that. You could have a, you could set your like a Zoom background to have a little Stonehenge come down <laughs> randomly. I love that in uh, the actual Shank Hall in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I mm-hmm. think, I could be wrong, but I know that somewhere in Wisconsin there is, even though they didn't shoot the scene there, they all sh- they shot the whole movie in LA, but it took place at Shank Hall in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. There is a miniature Stonehenge hanging oh. from the rasters of the stage. That is tribute. amazing. It's just amazing. The, the hold that this movie has. Like, if you know, culture. you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, awesome. you know, you look up, there's Stonehenge right there. I almost want to go to Wisconsin and see it. Like, <laughs> just take a picture of it. This 18 inch thing there, which is right. 18 feet tall. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't see this movie until I knew who, like, Michael McKean was already as a certain person. I'm like, whoa, he was this, because he kind of played a lot of jerks kind of mm-hmm. later on. And, and then I went back, I'm like, he was this really funny guy in this 
yeah. in this movie it sang and was like totally not what I was expecting of him. I did I did realize, well, I don't know if it's this time or I've known before and it just came back up, but this is kind of oddly almost a Saturday Night Live movie because Everybody yeah. involved was writing or doing something with Saturday Night Live around this time, like Shearer and McKean, guests like Billy Crystal shows up in here, yeah. early Dana Carvey. Very, yeah, very uh, like, And Billy Crystal, I mean, it's so dumb, the mime is money, but he delivers it in such a <laughs> It works. It like, kills me every time. I don't understand why, but he has that perfect delivery of right. hey, mime is money. Like, just because it's like he fits it. He's real. He sells it it's oh it's, it's, so good. it's like that's that's been the company of uh you know the company edict basically of of shut up and eat that's what it's yes. called in an, in an outtake in the movie he's he's talking to marty de Berge and he goes oh it's called shut up and eat that's what we call our company it's so if you, you get the feeling that <laughs> this has been his life and my his money is has been like basically on his business card right right and you're talking about uh, the simpsons i was reading that apparently fran drescher reprised her role for an episode of The Nanny, a show I did not watch uh, in the 90s. She played uh, that character again. It was catching up with her, and it was like what that character oh, was doing now. Oh, I want to say, like, I haven't watched all the extras in a while, and I think mm-hmm. there was a thing in 1992. It was straight to video, which I do not have, but they, they released a new song, I think, Christmas with the Devil, I think it was. And I think mm. it was in concert with a concert. They actually had a live concert film. Okay. With, with a couple of different, like they had one with Marty DeBerge, Rob, Rob Reiner there. And yeah, mm-hmm. Fran Drescher did re- reprise her role. I don't know where she was in her career at that point before she was Bobby Fleckman. Right. Bobby Fleckman, you know, you know. Yeah. Because so I mean, great. five years later is when she's in uh, the Weird Al movie, UHF. Right. But yeah, so there's like a five-year gap there. And then she just... Headlines a sitcom later on um, that like runs that. forever. I think yeah. that one went for a long time. But she's a yeah, young Fran Drescher. Like yeah, really works quite well. Liked her at UHF. Like her at this. Mm-hmm. Definitely, Reiner is a nice talent to have here too. That like recreating things like that. Uh, the Flower People. Uh, that video <laughs> is stunningly genuine and am- amazing. Like it feels. It's so to the touch. Like that 70s stuff that it's yep. hilarious like because it doesn't try to overdo it it just like like you said a lot of this movie plays it straight and it works like gangbusters it does you know they shoot it on videotape and transfer it to film as you know it's not done on film that's what i love about it because you could tell mm-hmm. you know they shoot on video as would be like live tv or something back in 1964 right. or or 67 with the flower people it's that little attention to detail if they shot it on film i wouldn't have believed it they put it on videotape it yep. looks worse but because of that it looks better yeah the attention to detail you know the the three stars wrote and perform the songs. They mimed them on stage, but I know that Christopher Guest was so concerned about making sure that he was miming or playing to the right things. That they did reshoots to make sure that he actually was like doing the proper finger movements. Like they oh, were geez. dedicated to their craft. And those are genuinely good, bad songs. That's yeah. What I love oh about no. Them. Yeah. They're like, I think there are bands that wish they would have had something like that <laughs> right? as the real thing. And these yeah. are, awful like the sex farm that is <laughs> sex farm woman yeah. oh that that's a that's a class i think the kids would call that a banger yeah, i don't know uh, so 
I think one of the ultimate validations for Spinal Tap, was it at Live 8 that it happened? It was the one where Pink Floyd re-coalesced uh, with their original lineup for, for one show. I think it was 2005. That's right. It seems, it seems like a lot earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't seem that long ago. But Spinal Tap played. And as the closing number of their set, mm-hmm. they brought every bass player in every band who was on at Live 8 on that set. They had like thing, like 30 odd different bass players to play Big Bottom, which is, you know, somewhat famously, all the three players are playing bass guitars for that. And so you had the bass player from Metallica and every other band playing the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
it's him reading to them the, for the they're hearing it for the first time as they're reacting to it in character, which is great because you know this is you know, this is a, you know about the rock and roll creation. What day did God rest? And surely he could have rested when when they created Spinal Tap too. And he could sort of see Michael McKean goes, oh, it's a good one, it's a good one. And of course, <laughs> the famous one, he goes, there's just a two word review for for Shark Sandwich, <laughs> shit sandwich. <laughs> And they and you oh. can tell that they laugh. They almost break character, but they laugh in character because it's so fucking. Funny. It's good. God. Yeah, it's, people still people still say shit sandwich. Shit sandwich. Yeah, regards to anything, not just albums. It's so it's it's brilliant. And then there, I mean, there's stuff in there that I laugh. Like I believe one of their um, one of their songs or albums when they're like a you know Beatles esque band is. Yeah. Pop, look, and listen, which <laughs> it's so brilliant because you know somebody would have called something that then. 100%. And it's yeah. so dumb, but so, but clever. And you're, it, it just makes this whole round that you're just like, you, you, you're like, okay, that's, it might go by you one time watching and you don't think too hard yeah. about it. And then when you think about it, you're like, some, some exec would have named something that. Easily. 100%. Like now, exclamation point, you know, right. somewhere around 1966, I'll bet. Probably an right. album called that. Yes. Yeah. Now, the attention yeah. to detail is uh, is perfect. Yeah. Is it's perfect. Yeah. It's so per- like you could, man, you know, you could show like a, not that I would recommend showing a child Spinal Tap, but they could buy it as a real <laughs> documentary and not 100%. really understand like, wow, that was weird. But, oh gosh. And then, oh, they're also the black album cover that they never you know, predating the Metallica Black Album, which, which was made in in homage to that Black Album, and became the, the highest selling album of the nineties. <laughs> it's, it's already been a joke. It's Final Tap. I know. It's oh so gosh, great. yeah. Which is you know, it's it's hinted to with Fran Drescher talking about the White Album. That had nothing on yeah. it. That's sold. So uh, I know. <laughs> God, I, I love that. It's one of my, you know, there's a lot of jokes in Spinal Tap, but also it's a lot of hints at stuff too, because that that brings up one of my favorite lines. They're all my favorite lines, but you know, when he goes, you know, that that there's a glove, you know, with, you, you know, with a door caller <laughs> and and smelling it. It was well. Let me tell you what it wasn't. What they <laughs> wanted to put in the cover? It wasn't a hand. It wasn't a glove. I could tell you. And just like so, your your imagination is like. You know what? What was the original, already rejected version of this album cover that was never seen? And we never see the album cover. Is it never it, see not it. in deleted material or anything? Like that's the best thing. The best thing is to that, never see it. That's the best part of the joke. You never see it. If you saw it, I imagine you know what? If if Parks and Rec had done something like that, there would be a crash zoom into the actual album cover, and everyone had their little laugh and reaction mm-hmm. shots and everything. But no, Spinal Tap just cuts cuts right to the bone and uses the bare comedy you know it, it just uses what it needs and moves on and lets the audience yeah. fill in what they don't need to see i, it's I so say bad. this with with movies with tv with, like sometimes the best thing is not explaining leaving yep. it to the imagination something in a movie could be scarier if you don't explain the evil if it's just that yep. something you know sometimes things that pop on screen don't need gigantic backstories or spin-off movies they are just that and right. they can be <laughs> Exactly. Fine. You know, it's uh, slightly off topic, but I, but in in that line of thinking, I I watched Groundhog Day literally for the first time like two years ago, hmm. and I remember at the time where I was sort of thinking, oh, this is weird, but now I love it that they never explain why he keeps repeating that day. It's not there's important. No, like it's a, not important. They call that a MacGuffin. Yeah, just but whatever. Yeah. It's like it's no, just, it it happens. Do you? Is it okay? It's yeah. gonna be funny. 
but we don't care why it does this. And that's exactly. fine. Like, yep. I, I don't like I come from a school of I surrender myself to fiction. Like it's it's fiction. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to. Be, I'm not I'm not going three dollars for reality, please. No. <laughs> I, when I paid three dollars for a movie, that's not how much they cost. But right. <laughs> I guess did, they did one day, my son. They did one day. I guess some digital rentals, but I, yep. I don't go like this. I <laughs> no. Hit my remote or something. Please take my my <laughs> ticket that's been in my pocket for a week. Yes, I've got for this one digital movie for a reality show. Please, yeah. like you know, like yeah, life isn't an hour and a half. So why should you? Uh, yeah, that's a whole nother discussion. Very much for my for my series that I tease my viewers is going to come to ha- fruition someday. Panels called Fandom D U M B Fandom to talk wow. about things like that. But who knows? About that, there's so much I. There's a there's a scene I want to point out because I talk about clothing or apparel stuff from movies that I would right. like to own myself. Okay. Uh, starting with Jesse from Elm, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, uh, he's this hat in a scene that I want. Nobody, mm-hmm. my listeners have are still on the hunt for it. My uh, Michael McKean's sweatshirt with the stars and Saturn. <laughs> I would wear the heck out of that. <laughs> that he wants to take off because he wants to go to the back. I just well, want to see the play the new game, the new mm-hmm. game they got there. The I Commodore sixty four. Yeah, com- <laughs> oh, look at this computer magic! Quite amazing. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I would that, wear that the minute be- a breeze hits. I'm wearing right. that all till the next till the sun comes up. And the- that would be amazing. And I wonder if uh, Janine made like sweatshirts for all the rest of the band, just like she oh. was designing. Uh, you know, um, astrological. Oh, they're they're images. Yes. You oh. know, you know how much that would cost. I like they're like cool. It's like how much would that? Cost? Yeah, how much would that? Cost? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. It costs a lot to dress them up as animals. They're not dressed up as animals. They're dressed up as signs of the zodiac. Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, and they never show them as that either. That would no. have been. That's it's the joke. That's the joke. It's the, joke. It's, it's the imagination that actually makes it mm-hmm. funnier than actually properly seeing it. The imagination and reaction is what works for it. Um, exactly. Oh, I'm sure there's fan art of them, which. <laughs> Quite probably doing that. Maybe on their tour of Japan after after the end of the movie, they right, yes. wear those costumes. Possibly, I felt old because I remember Sears and Kmart stores. Well, <laughs> well, not just remember that. I remember not so much Kmart, but mm. Sears carrying cool stuff. Like they'd sell VHS tapes, they'd sell albums and TVs and stuff. I, I don't even know if Sears is still around. I don't, they closed those or they something. Closed. They closed. Yeah, they closed Sears them. Closed. But, I know. But for the longest time, like once, like somewhere in the nineties hit, they they're like, we're not going to carry cool stuff while your parents are shopping. <laughs> Cause they used to have like a Nintendo there. They used to have things. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a shame. But I was like, Oh, I remember they had cool stuff. They used well, to have not, a Lego section. They used to have Lego oh, there. Yeah. They would have, you know, like a small toy. So like, it's not as cool as like your, uh, your targets or whatever, but yeah, they would have some toys, at least at mine. When I was growing up, but yours right. might have had more. Well, I do know that uh, Edmonton did have the largest Sears store in Canada. It mm. also had the second largest. So, oh, uh, the Super I Sears. Know. We had Super. We had. I guess we had Super Sears uh, in on two of our malls. Uh, no longer. So, yeah, that's a bit tragic in a way. But oh well, maybe they could still buy a uh, smell the glove there in its all black cover. <laughs> smell the glove. Yeah, Sears dot com album section. Smell the glove. That's it. <laughs> That's the only That's one I have. Yeah, out of out of stock. Yeah, cover cover image not available. Mm-hmm. 
So I wanted to point out okay. that this is an odd occurrence for my my podcast because a, a year ago to this episode, like one year ago, it would have been like the next day. What the what's so we're bearing on the 29th, the 29th, or it would have it's been like the 52 weeks 30, prior. 52 weeks prior. Right. The episode that we did on this show was The Decline of Western Civilization with my guest, director of Bleeding Audio, Chelsea Christer. Okay. Um, do you know The Decline of Western Civilization? Is that a Quebec film from the 1980s? It is from the 1980s, but it is a music documentary about the punk rock scene in Los Angeles <laughs> in the early 80s. <laughs> the decline of American civilization. Yes. Probably the thing that I'm one I'm thinking of. There that, you go. Because that would have been a hell of a deep cut. Uh, that I have not seen, the decline uh, of Western civilization. It's pretty intense. But Chelsea Christian, who directed Bleeding Audio, which is a document, music documentary, about a band called The Matches, which was a like an emo punk band in the early in the two thousands that never got across the hump, never got like this right. hit. Never they were getting close, and it's about like what life's like for a band like that, and where they go to after. When's the cutting off point? Like what's mm-hmm. what success really means? And so she was on there. So two, it was like a two for episode for me. It was two music two music documentaries. Here I am that exact day here with another of <laughs> another music documentary, so- but not a real one, but. A real one. So in a year's time, I guess to like I, you know, it, talk about the filth and the fury, or some other, uh, or the last waltz, or right. some other, uh, or doing rudels again, yeah, Rudels, maybe. Yep. But yeah, like it was real. You pick that, and then I'm writing up about this episode. I'm like, wait a minute, because I did a video. One of my best videos for a promo was "Decline mm-hmm. of Western Civilization." I called it "Decline of Podcast Civilization." <laughs> And I did it about my I did about myself being this a whole podcaster, and I made I literally in a couple of days scrounged up previous guests, made it look like a documentary about me being a jerk podcaster, and <laughs> right. I can't believe I pulled it together. But it's one of my favorite videos I did. I was like, oh, that was about a year ago. Oh my! I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing another music doc. Wild. So wow. this is the week of like the the post American Thanksgiving week is. <laughs> Music documentary city. <laughs> Unintended anniversaries, basically. Yeah. Like oh, it just I it spooked me for something. I was like, wow, that's weird. Cause I I didn't I didn't you picked the you picked the movie, Steven. Not I me. did. I and I don't honestly like when I got your email, I was thinking, well, geez, what what would I even pick? And then I was thinking, well, I've never been able to talk about Spinal Tap at great length on any podcast ever. And now is the time. There's another podcast, a network that I know of that I'm a part of, the incomparable, and I thought well, I know their fans and literally their eighth episode, like 10 years ago, they did on Spinal Tap. So I feel like all my avenues uh, of talking about Spinal Tap were disappearing. So I'm I'm happy to have this uh, episode of the Brandon Peters show, which is Puppet Show and Stephen Chapansky. How many, I told them once, I told them a hundred times, show Puppet Show last, Spinal Tap first. <laughs> Oh, I love Jazz it. Jazz Odyssey. There is actually a, a, one of the, I mean, I played in a band, as I said. Uh, we did a cover of uh, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You, Rock You Tonight. Uh, we did an original song in another band, and we didn't have a name for it. So I said, let's mm-hmm. call it Jazz Odyssey, because after Derek Spall's Jazz Odyssey that they played at the uh, the puppet show, got, yeah, my, my life is informed by Spinal Tap references very much so. I'm a dr- I'm a drummer that actually who's who's still alive. Thankfully, I know they're, they're, oh, sort, they're sort good. of making making fun of uh, the the don't the state join of Spinal drummers. Tap if they need one. 
No, which would be tragic, but fun in the same way. But I'm probably suffering from a very I, I, law of averages. <laughs> law of averages says I will survive. <laughs> yeah, so is yeah. big shrimp to. Oh, I, I had a flashback to podcasting wise when they did the military base and there's the PA going off. <laughs> I did one of my first live podcast shows I did right out. I don't know how many years ago. I'm not going to count. For my old show, we got put up. Uh, it was a stage at a convention, and they put mm-hmm. it out in the food atrium court because, you oh know, my God. little bu- built-in audience. That's fair. Right. But okay. for some reason, somebody at that time decided to change all the ice or refill all the ice in all the soda fountain machines through all the little food court things. It was like, <laughs> during the whole thing. And I'm just like, and you can't hear no I'm looking at people out there. They're like, I'm like, yeah, but it was like, so weird. <laughs> you know, where they had that, I had a flashback to that. I was like, yep, I've been there. I've people been there. Go- spinal tap. People don't think about it. I love the fact that uh, Fred Willard did a great cameo. Mm. Um, uh, expects like to, to get underway in you know uh, at eighteen thirty hours. And they don't know how much is like half an hour. Like how long do you <laughs> think it takes to set up a rock and roll stage? Oh geez. half an hour. Half he has hour. no idea. I just oh God, I love some of Fred Willard's lines because he's you all know, just like oh, but we're all big fans of your music. You know, not necessarily yours, but you know the whole genre, the whole the whole movement. And then I love how he says, you know, I thought we yeah, I get you know eighteen thirty. 1900, you know, 1900 or something like that. Get it on, get it over with. And that's like, he's just, he's just very low key. You can tell why Willard features in all of Christopher Guest's uh, oh, movies yeah. like this later on, because he's, he's just so good at it. I mean, th- there are so many talented people in this that are in there for so short a time, but mm-hmm. bring so much. Howard Hessman. Yeah. Uh, we got to go and, and sit in the lobby and wait for the limo. His line, like, you know, all improvised, you know, and like, he was a big deal at the time. Like, oh yeah, WKRP. that was a get. That was someone, someone was a, someone's got a favor in there to probably. Right? So like, there's, there's so many just rock solid cameos. It just, you know, it's not just the three of them that have the great lines. It's the, mm-hmm. the hotel attendant, you know, because where the uh, Ian is sort of complaining to him that instead of getting seven suites, they've booked one right. suite on the seventh <laughs> oh, floor. Yes. And he and he's and Ian goes, you know, this uh, puff adder or whatever he calls him. He just looks a, just as shocked. He goes, "I'm just as God made me." Sir. Yes, I <laughs> I cried and that was that and they was cut like, it oh, and they cut it right after that because that is. God made me that is the heat of the moment, and they cut it. That's that's another part where it's just perfect editing. That's that's oh. the joke. You know, it doesn't have to rely on just the three stars. It doesn't have to build up to it. It's just a short little quick scene, and it just ends perfectly. It's so brilliantly edited. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I go on and on about this movie. All night. I love it's it. so I, good. I, I recently saw 2000. I say recently. In the last three years, I saw 2001 in the theater. And first time ever. Never seen mm-hmm. the theater. Always okay. watched it. Like first, I watched it on VHS. Then I bought the Blu-ray and I like or the DVD, and I loved it. I loved it when I since I first saw it on my 18th birthday. Mm-hmm. But I didn't watch it for a few years, and then I thought, well, do I really love? It? Is it really still my favorite movie, or am I just afraid to watch it again just in case it has fallen in esteem? And then I go and see it in the theater, and I says, this is still my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. I was mildly concerned because I I did I watched it once before this, which is probably why uh, it was fresh in my mind because I watched it just on a whim like a few months ago, and I thought I watched it a billion times like twenty years ago. Is it still going to be that perfect movie for me? And I'm here to tell you it is. Yeah, it's uh, confirmed. 
it is confirmed. It's nice to sort of go back and realize that it's not just nostalgia feeding your love of a, mm-hmm. of a movie or a TV show or, or an album or something like that. It is a genuinely perfect piece of art, and that's what this is Spinal Tap is. What else? Uh, this is where we just kind of talk about anything else we got going on, maybe. Maybe something we've read recently or watched or listened to or want to recommend or check out. So, Stephen, what else? I, b- I bought... It's funny. I, every time I wanted to watch James Bond movies, they would be on a streaming service. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to start watching James Bond movies. And then they would disappear from that streaming service. <laughs> See, pants over to the living daylights. So, I... I had seen a lot of the Bonds a long time ago, but like in passing, so it's okay. a long story. But I enjoyed the hell out of Skyfall and also, and then I saw Spectre in London when I was oh, in London. Oh, wow. came out when I was in London, which was really cool in 2017. And I was really looking forward to the, the, the most recent one, No Time to Die. And so I thought, instead of trying to find this, I'm just going, oh, look at this. There's all Bond films. All of them, up from Dr. No all the way through to Spectre for like a hundred bucks on iTunes. So I bought them all and I just started watching them late at night, almost like one or two or three a week. Mm -hmm. I stopped briefly. I I stopped after For Your Eyes Only. So the other ones are mostly new. I don't remember the Dalton ones at all. Oh, okay. Um, Those are going to probably play pretty well for you. I think so, because it's fascinating to watch them. And then I watch the documentaries on them because I love document, you know, yeah, Blu-ray extras and, and the iTunes. Yeah, the, the iTunes has the Vam on there, and it's just fascinating to see the the progression of of just the James Bond that that sort of genre and the popularity of mm-hmm. it through the sixties and seventies. So so I've been watching uh, all those, and it's also a very huge resource to spot Doctor Who actors <laughs> in bit parts. You can also hear some sound effects that appear, that show up in various different, like the prisoner and like mm-hmm. other Doctor Who as well, like in the nineties, because they basically they pull from the same stock right. sound effects that everyone's pulling <laughs> from. So sometimes you wait a second, that's the door to number two's house in the prisoner. Um, so yeah, I've been watching James Bond. I really enjoyed For Your Eyes Only because it was sort of a one shot return to the sort of the minimalist uh, type of films of the nineteen sixties. I'm not necessarily looking forward too much to Octopus. Pussy and uh, and uh, um, but the other one, um, for, uh, a view to kill. kill. Apart from o- theme Octopussy song. has a good concept for its finale yeah. that could have could have worked somewhere. It it's uh, yeah, it's one of it's one of the Bond family. I'll say that right. Um, yep, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm 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 looking forward to it, to analyzing it and enjoying it, and and then into Dalton and and Brazen. I have no memory of any Brazen. Films, oh wow, okay. So I'm looking forward to those as well. And, and I really like the Craig film. So, uh, yeah, uh, in, in a relative short amount of time, I sort of became like a James Bond fan. So, there you go. I, so that's kind of what been fueling me. I've, I've always been a James Bond, Bond fan, but I got my start blogging for doing James Bond. I did a retrospective of uh, oh. writing each film back leading up to Skyfall for mm-hmm. uh, now Forbes writer Scott Mendelson back when he was had his blog Mendelson's Memos. And I, right. I just he needed he was working at an attorney's office and he had less time. He's like, can you throw me some content? I'm like. Well, I kind of want to go back through the Bond movie. What if I just write a piece about each movie leading up to? He's like, brilliant. And then that kind of turned into a, a thing where I just wrote these retrospectives, and then mm-hmm. blah 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 podcasting. So, long story <laughs> just short, like, just like that. But you're not watching them on CED. Do you remember CED? I do not remember CED. What is that? Even stack is that? What is that? So that that's what that these two are. Yeah. Um, 
and that's just because I collect physical media and put Naturally. it on my wall. Because like that's normal. Uh, well, you, well, you can't put a DVD cover on your wall and have it look no, cool like that. No. There, yeah. So CED came out uh, around Betamax and VHS, and it was like kind of. It's not really a CD or something, but it's just like big cartridge, and you put it into this machine, I've and then you'd those. have to flip it over and put it in again. And I really like the artwork on these. I, I thought right. I thought that art came from like one of those like time life plate collections from that they used to have back in the day. And I was like, yep. oh, man, I wish they'd have a poster. And then I found out they were from CEDs. And I and then I was like, well, how much are they on eBay? And it's like two dollars for each of them. And I was like, okay. And then I got curious. I was like, how much is a CED player? Nope, nope, still not cheap. Don't know why. Don't know <laughs> right. why. Like, probably the rarity I'm imagining. I mean, even a VHS is, player totally, is tough to get right now. So. And people wonder why I have four VHS players. Hold on to those currency. Like they are life. Well, yes. I had, I had, like, so I have one that I have hooked up for. I don't know why, but right. and then I have three backups. And people are like, why? I'm like, because if it goes out, then I have another one. If that goes yeah. out, and I had, a, I had, a, I had a grandparent pass away one time, and there was a mm-hmm. DVD VCR combo sitting there while everybody's. You know, as they do, poured through all their stuff. And I was just going there to check out, see if people need help. And I was like, hey, does anybody want that VCR down? They're like, why? She never even plugged that thing in ever, in ever. And I was like, uh huh. Well, thanks, Grandma. I'm going to take this, I guess. And it's a never used one. So I have that clean one. So listen, Phil (laughs) Morris, who has found missing Doctor Who episodes and other lost media over the years, uses as barter old archaic tape, videotape machines like Mm -hmm. Umatic or three quarter inch tape. Yeah. Because to exchange with certain overseas archives that do not have the machines to play back their archive material on in exchange for missing film cans and stuff like this. So so maybe one day one you day. will find yourself like, oh, you have six missing episodes of Doctor I would, Who? Mm. How, how would you like this brand new VHS player for your national archives to be there able you go. to play it on again? So there you go. You never know. I would I would love to be in the, the lore of that. <laughs> they just I'd be able to like I found like someone like I found this in a book in the library. It's two film trims of yeah. <laughs> pictures from Marco Polo. That's is that okay? Right. Yeah. So or oh, the massacre. So we actually have something from it. Oh yeah. There we Thank go. you. Please. Uh but yeah, no, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. But I, I love your I love hearing about people's James Bond journeys. They're yeah. It's a fun series. It's it's cool to watch just it grow, it copy things, it copy itself, it do all sorts of interesting. Do you have a favorite bond of them all or oh I mean it's um boy oh boy it's it is it wrong to say daniel craig because no no. you know because it's made for a modern audience and i look at it and you know what this i feel like who is uh directed the born is a paul i always get paul greengrass and paul mcguigan there's paul Paul greengrass did the borns after the first one was doug lyman did the first one and then paul greengrass did two three and for, okay. Yeah. I always feel like those two people are probably the most important directors in James Bond history because I feel <laughs> like they completely changed. Like James Bond was sort of like this sort of bloated super technology, invisible cars mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then all of a sudden those Bourne movies came out and it, it was sort of, it basically kind of did what For Your Eyes only did. It was it like poked back him. to basics. It's like, hey, yeah. poked him. It's like, hey. You, you, you can't just sort of rest on your Bond laurels anymore. And so like, I, I feel like 
2005, 2006 really had two very successful refreshings mm-hmm. of British icons in Doctor Who and then James Bond right. a year later. They're really good films. I like how the character sort of carries through the movies. They're not as like, just like standalone and stuff. There's there's consequences that take place in mm-hmm. Casino Royale that right. play out four or five year, you know films later. So yeah, I and it's amazing to think how much controversy there was when Daniel Craig was cast. It's so not, weird. Not James Blonde and all this other nonsense. Like it was just That's why fans don't don't just <laughs> Put that on your panel list. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it will. Yeah, that that will be. Yeah, things they yeah. cried about, things they were wrong about. Yeah, like, it's also fat. Like I just like seeing the just the poster image of Casino Royale and thinking he Daniel Craig is a baby back then compared yeah. to what he is. On you know, you think you, I mean, it's no Roger Moore. Roger Moore is like what fifty eight mm-hmm. uh, in uh, View to a Kill. He's not that old, but like he he does look like you know. It's not the right. years, it's the mileage. Become, we used to uh, be like, get out, that. old man. Now we're yeah. like, stay, old man. Yeah. Stay. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. And he's the longest tenured by years of James Bond, which is crazy. It is fascinating, given that you feel like he's sort of been reluctant. You kind of get the impression that he's mm-hmm. leaving after Skyfall, that he's back for one. And then he's like trashing it in the press, like, oh, James Bond's done for me. It's like, oh, well, he is just burning his bridges. Just I think he's just coming. a misunderstood Joker kind of, or I, just a I think guy. So. Like I don't, cause he's never had bad relationships with the producers or anything. They no. finances like right around that time. They were financing a production in London for him or something like that. It's oh, like, really? Yeah. I think he's just like, Oh man, I'd rather say, Oh, Daniel Craig, rest. <laughs> like, I think that's kind of where it, it go. I mean, he had, <laughs> right. he did that. That was a big production after a big production. That's going to wear a guy out. And yeah, and I think he's been the longest time we're lucky because the studio MGM has been going under and having problems and that too. And, and then we, COVID basically he's shooting his last film, like what, right. two years ago now. Yes. Like, and he still had to be having to do press for a movie that he shot two years ago because it's yes. only finally coming out. Yeah. Um, but I saw it and it's great. Yeah. No time to die is, is, oh, yeah. is a super, I, I'm not going to spoil anything for people who might not have seen it yet, even though it's been a month and a half, but, uh, yeah, the the the, bo- the the Craig Five Bond series are are really good films. Yeah, really really good. They're self aware a little more, but not like to the point of parody. I think they're right. made with an eye towards you know f- feminist relations. And in the past, you could really tell when, mm-hmm. how how far feminism has come uh, in the years since the later Conneries, especially. I feel like that, and mm-hmm. you know, I think you're going to be surprised, Brosnan films introduces ideas that Craig explores too. Craig's is okay. more heavier on those, but Brosnan brings up some of those ideas that Craig's era gets all very praised for. And then Dalton as a uh-huh. Bond character got reviled for being the same kind of Bond that Craig played. So it's kind of it's kind of funny to see how times change what people oh. look more for or yeah. accept. So I'm oh, I'm looking forward to those then. I'm because really, yeah. I I think I've I'm less in favor of of George Lazenby's Bond at each time I watch the movie, <laughs> even though the movie he's in is fantastic. It's, actually, it's because it's Diana Riggs movie, not his. And and when I, I will say this, that that's the one that's about the Bond girl, yeah. and the movie suffers when she disappears for like forty minutes of the movie. It does, it does a bit when he goes to that weird thing in the yeah. Swiss Alps and stuff, and uh, where where Joanna Lumley is seen very briefly. Um, and, uh, and Catherine oh, Schell, Catherine Who. Schell from City of Death. There yes. we are. Check that. George Baker doing the voice for him for most of those scenes right. as well. He was the Doctor Who. 
Oh yeah, I believe my my Dwaydar, as I call it, my Doctor Who <laughs> radar was uh, was was pinging. There's also a great theme remix by Propellerheads, uh, mm. who did it. They did the song famously from uh, the first Matrix movie. But oh, okay. on that same album is is a remix of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Ah, it is superb. I have to check that uh, out. I love do, that theme. Do check it out. Okay. It's a really great tune. And in the middle of it, there's there's some music from uh, You Only Live Twice, which has the most bonkers bass set. I know we're going off a tangent on James Bond, but like when I wa- first watched that- you, British you people lo- who changed the main character, the lead's the same character, <laughs> but changes the actor. We're fine with it. That's what we, we're like, hooked on it. We're hooked on what, that stuff. Well, what was amazing to me is that when you look at a big wide shot of a movie, especially in 1960s cinema, mm-hmm. you think in a glass shot, that's got to be a glass shot. Mm-hmm. But then the camera starts moving and it's still there. A helicopter is flying into the top. That's got to be a model. No, it's a real helicopter. Ken Adam built this movie massive underground layer. It's incredible. It's, it's real. It's life size. They they didn't have the the technology to make it a miniature and, and film it that way. So they just built the thing outside of an actual studio in order to have the uh, it's, it's, it's one of the most impressive sets ever made. Like it's, it's stunning. insane. It's and then they have like a billion stuntmen fall off and there's explosions and you think if this was made today in this in this respect, <laughs> it would be the most expensive movie ever. Oh yeah. It's all on screen. And I in order to it. make money, it would have to be directed by James Cameron because he's the only yeah. guy who spends tons of money. You're like, dude, you're never getting that back. Oh, okay. No. You made it back. Wow. Yeah. You're, you're never. And then they do it basically again 10 years later in Spy Who Loved Me, which is also mm-hmm. just a bonkers ending. You know, it's just, uh, those are those are my there's two There's a trilogy. There's, films. There's, volca- yeah. there's the volcano with You Only Live Twice. There's Spy Who Loved Me with the underwater. And then they yeah. go to the moon in Moonraker. It's like the little trilogy, all from the same director. <laughs> that's but right, Lewis Gilbert, yeah. All, all the, but that's, that's why people are like, oh, Moonraker goes. I'm like, dude, it was. It was it was a premise like he went to the ground, he went to the sea, then he goes yeah. to the sky. Like it, it meant like I I have always argued Moonraker is like three fourths one of the best James Bond movies, and then <laughs> your mileage may vary on the final quarter. But I, oh, I, that's how I, I am with was, that one. I thought it was ridiculous, and therefore I loved it. Yes, he's yeah. floating through lakes, space, shooting each other with lasers. I thought <laughs> it's basically yep. the undersea battle at the end of yes. uh, Thunderball. Oh, yeah. Or Thunderball, 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 Thunderball. Under, yeah. Thunderball, except it's in space, right? And why not? <laughs> of course, uh, yes. Uh, oh, James Bond. I could go on for hours again, just yeah. like Doctor Who. But I'll go to my what else? Um, I'll be brief about mine. Since we went yeah, there. Um, Drive hog the mic for so long. I'm all so good. Sorry. It, my show is your show. I finished a Netflix show, <laughs> like uh, Midnight Mass, which. Is Mike Flanagan's new thing? He's known for those Haunting of Hill House, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of weird with the Netflix shows. They drop them all, and then I'm like, I'm this one came out in October, but I was like, right. I was really busy with my Blu-ray reviews at the time, so I it's like I want to enjoy that, so I'm gonna hold off, and then I only watched one episode whenever I did. Oh, and that's wonderful! I didn't didn't cram them. Didn't cram I, them. I applaud this approach. But I applaud it. Well, I'm not. I, I dog Netflix a lot because I think mm-hmm. a lot of their programming, binge programming is, I I don't think they appreciate the model of the episode, just a single episode much. Um, we, we, could do a whole, we could do a podcast on yep. James Bond. We could do a podcast on what you're about to say about yeah. Netflix too, so just so you know. I, you're, I, you're talking to it. You're preaching to a choir. Which is why with Flux, I'm really impressed with Chris Chimnall. Every single episode of a serialized story has not point A, B, and C yes. to get to the end. And it's, I'm astounded. I'm like, that's how serialization is done, which mm-hmm. people just think, oh, it's a long movie. 
no, no. But when it comes to that stuff, Mike Flanagan, I've really enjoyed his stuff uh, that he's put out. And this Midnight Mass, take the horror stuff out of it, it is still incredibly engaging because it has a battle of about religion mm-hmm. and like atheism and being a Muslim and st- like, and how like it is fascinating conversations are had in that show about people's like, uh, like faith, science, all this stuff really right. the conversations that we should have today with people or people should be having about things and learning to respect one another's type of things. And mm-hmm and how it's reacted and it's there on the screen for people to see like hey look and i really appreciate that aspect most of it oh yeah and there's like some like kind of vampire thing going on but right these like this this challenge on like religion and accepting others or like logic ideology stuff like that is just pretty amazingly just open blunt and they're on the page for that show, and I really thought that was an awesome aspect of it. I'm mildly surprised that my because my my spouse Erica watched the first two that you talked about mm-hmm. in fairly short fashion, and yet hasn't picked this one up. I don't know hmm. if that's just because she has other more fluffier stuff, perhaps. To right, get through it's deep. It's it yeah, feels like it's a heavier version, uh, mm-hmm. heavier type of show. Maybe that's not up her alley quite yet. I have no time because I'm watching uh, old James Bond films. Of course, stand so who who has time for Netflix series? Which I w- I would yeah, <sighs> nobody. Like, Doctor Who. There's I mean, eight new full series every Friday. Why? <laughs> why? How do you pick and I, choose? I, if I you can't. tell me I gotta watch all of them, I can't. I'm not gonna watch any of them. Yeah, Sorry. but this one I like the, the the guy who drew the creator of it, and I was like, I'll hold off and watch this. And right. I just there was an episode where uh, the the sheriff. It's this little island town, and mm-hmm. the sheriff is the only Muslim on there. They're all mainly Catholics, and there's talking about like. Why is like the son brought something to school? It offended. And he's like, well, you guys do this teachings. And he's trying to explain how he's not dangerous as a Muslim. And there's this woman just not having it. And it's just amazing. This Mm. way this conversation goes. It's pretty great. Interesting. And there's all the science stuff in there for me, too. So it's all <laughs> actually that's it's all good. So <laughs> vampires don't hurt either. So. Vampires are cool, too. But yeah, that's uh, on there. Midnight Mass. Um, you've probably already seen it and I'm late to the game. But if you haven't and you're not even into horror, but you want to see some fights about ideologies. There you go. Right there. But no uh, big uh, scenes featuring uh, underground layers or uh, or lasers in space. There was like a cave, I think. <laughs> Right. There was like a, a cave, right. but uh, yeah, but no, no, no super spy action. Nobody that was a spy that I know of, <laughs> right? That was planted on the island, but yeah, uh-huh. but yes, definitely. And James Bond is probably streaming in places, right? I don't know. I have a box set, so I know. right. I know. I, I pulled I, of that. I, so exactly. Awesome. But uh, that'll wrap us up here for today, Stephen. Thank you so much for the, popping out of the flux to come here and class up our show today. <laughs> I really appreciate it. So uh, before we sign out, uh, let people know where they can keep up with you and your happenings. I'm on Twitter at Legopolis, Legopolis, uh, a city full of Lego, because I love Lego, and Logopolis is the name of a a Doctor Who episode. So, The one we all cried at. That's I know, the one that uh, changed my life as a kid when Tom Baker died at the end of it. So, yeah, find me on Twitter. Uh, RadioFreeScarrow.com is also my podcast there. Lazy Doctor Who is my other Doctor Who podcast that I do with my spouse, Erica. We've been watching all of Doctor Who from the very first episode at our own pace, hence the name of the show, Lazy Doctor Who. 
And then uh, The Memory Cheats is another show that I do with my friend Kyle. We review, we randomly draw episodes from certain eras and then talk about them for 15 or 20 minutes without doing any research or knowing any, you know, seeing if our memory does indeed cheat. We're on hiatus now because we're waiting for the end of the Chris Chibnall era, which of Mm. course is coming. So series four of the memory cheats will be coming at some point in the next two years. So if you really want to wait long, the memory cheats on Twitter for that one too. Excellent. Excellent. I recommend all three shows. No, thank you. There you go. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, written work at YSOBlue.com. There is more for the Brandon Peters show this week, but until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Osman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.